You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Once read a story about the Russian author Leo Tolstoy. And he would go through these times where he would just have fits of guilt about what he had, the amount of possessions, the amount of stuff that he owned and that he possessed. And that guilt would lead him to these feelings of needing to just get rid of it all and to be as generous as he possibly could in some sort of effort to be able to maybe garner the affection and the attention of God. And so there would be multiple times that Leo's wife would leave And when she would come back to her house, everything that they had was gone. He had given away all of their possessions and had absolutely nothing left. And of course, this didn't lead him to a greater level of piety or zeal or a closer relationship with God. It just led him to an empty house and probably a really angry wife. But I think we can all relate, at least on a small level, to the feeling that Tolstoy had. Because as Christians, we have a tendency to lean toward extremes. That we feel like if we can just go headfirst into some kind of an extreme, whether it's extreme generosity, extreme piety in our theology, in our approach to our understanding of who God is, in our moralism, in our church attendance, in our social justice or mercy ministries, or whatever the case may be, we feel like if we can just dive into that extreme, then maybe we'll be able to garner some kind of a deeper and more meaningful relationship with God. But here's the problem. Extremes are not sustainable. And we see that happen all of the time in the life of Christians around us. And chances are you've probably felt that as well. Extremes tend to lead to exhaustion, bitterness, burnout, deconstruction, radical swings from one extreme to the other. And all of this comes because we are not built for extremes. We are not built for that kind of radicalization. It was never the way that we were meant to relate to God, to one another, or just to live. And we see that frustration laid out inside of the book of Ecclesiastes. As the teacher begins to talk about the things that he sees and the extremes and the way that people live, and he comes to a conclusion on his own. But I think it points us ultimately to a better conclusion. But let's look at what he has to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 14 through 29. The Word of God says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So the man may not find anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, 
more than 10 rulers who were in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart at all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? We'll stop there this morning. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, this is an interesting one to thank you for because it just kind of in parts doesn't feel like it belongs. But I thank you how, especially in the midst of wisdom literature like this, you weave in all of our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions, our fears, and the conclusions that we draw and you use them to push our hearts directly to the gospel. So God, we all may be coming here stretching ourselves, exhausting ourselves, destroying ourselves in one way, shape, form, or fashion. But remind us today that you've given us a better way in Christ Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've already talked about the difficulties of Ecclesiastes. That from its very inception, there was arguments about, does this belong in the canon? Does this belong in the narrative of Scripture? Is this actually part of what we believe is God's Word? And as we've seen through the entire book, there's a good case to be made that it definitely stands out amongst the rest of the books. But then when you get to this chapter, and especially verse 16, it really doesn't feel like this passage fits into the rest of the picture of what God teaches us in Scripture at all. Because look at what the teacher says in verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And that seems like a pretty desperate contradiction to what we see inside the rest of Scripture and how especially the people of God are called to live. And so we look at that and we say, surely something has to be lost in translation. Maybe I'm just reading that out of context because we have a tendency to do that, right? We can pull things out of context from the Bible and make them say radically different things. I remember one of the first Christian memes that I remember seeing when I was in college was a picture of a sign outside of a church where they had on the marquee, they would put different Bible verses and stuff. And I remember this particular one was actually a passage of scripture that we should have read today. But in fact, I put this week's playlist last week. And so we read it last week. And so we're actually reading the temptation story of Jesus out of order. And you probably didn't notice that, but I felt like I should just tell you because it's really been bothering me all week. But either way, they put a passage of scripture from Matthew chapter four on this marquee. And it says, if you will bow down and worship me, then all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you. Okay. So that sounds kind of nice. Until you look at Matthew chapter 4 and realize who's speaking. Because in that case, we have Jesus wandering through the wilderness. And this happens to be one of the temptations that Satan himself is giving Jesus. And so that church inadvertently, kind of accidentally, but also not paying attention to the context, was encouraging everyone to worship Satan. Which, I mean, I've been doing this for a little while now, but generally speaking, as a church, we try to avoid Satan worship as a part of our normal practice. 
But then another one that I like to throw with my kids all the time is that you can look in the Bible and you can find the phrase that there is no God, which seems like it would just negate the rest of the Bible because it's there. The Bible says there is no God. And of course, if you read a little further, you find out that it says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so, of course, we can just pull things out of context, and maybe that's what we're doing here. But then if we look at the context, we realize that no, we're not really doing that at all. Because he says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so the teacher says, look, I've watched how this world works. And you could try to be really righteous, and you're still going to die. And sometimes you're going to die before incredibly wicked people. And so maybe it's a better idea to not be so righteous and to try to moderate how wise you tend to be. And I think that we can relate to that if we just want to open ourselves up a little bit. Because how many times have you looked around and seen someone who is living their life in a way that you know is not only contrary to everything that God teaches about how we should live, but also contrary to everything that you believe is right and just and good, and yet you look at their life and they have everything that you want. They've got all the money that you could possibly desire. Maybe they have the kind of family that you've always longed for. Maybe they've just lived a long time and maybe they're incredibly healthy while you struggle with health. And you look at them and say, God, why is it that this wicked person is prospering and has everything that I want and I'm here trying to do the right thing, working myself to the bone, trying to be as righteous as I possibly can, and my life is kind of garbage. But then on the other side, and I think even the more frustrating and heartbreaking thing, how many times have you seen someone who is just a living saint that has dedicated their life to following after Jesus, who loves Jesus intimately, who loves their neighbor as themselves, who is the epitome of everything you can imagine that the Gospels are teaching us to live, and yet their bodies are just riddled with cancer. And they die at 32 or they seem to just be going through trial after trial after trial after trial. And we look at those kind of situations and we say, nope, that's not fair. And so the teacher looked at those kind of things and his deduction from all of this is, ah, kind of seems like being too righteous is not the way to go. I mean, you don't want to be too wicked because then you're kind of a jerk and nobody likes you. He's already talked about that kind of person who prolongs their life, but their life is miserable. But then also, you know, righteousness is not necessarily going to prolong your life. In fact, the Bible teaches us quite the opposite. From the very beginning of the narrative of Scripture, we've seen the Bible declare that to be not true. Because if you think about it, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, when we see the first person who seems to be identified as a righteous worshiper of God, we see the story of Abel, who offered a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. And then he was beaten to death. I literally, the first murder is a story about the first person in the narrative of Scripture identified as a righteous worshiper of God. That should teach us something about how righteousness works and how it doesn't work. And we can go through the list and we can look at people like Joseph. We can look at people like Daniel. We can fast forward in the New Testament and see Jesus and all of his apostles. And how their lives of righteousness didn't give them the good and fruitful life maybe that they were hoping for originally or the kind of life that we would expect someone to want or desire. And in fact, in a lot of these cases, their lives were cut short. 
And so if we are looking to good behavior or morality, if we're looking to wisdom or religiosity or our own righteousness to be a source of salvation or satisfaction or some sort of means to an end to get what we want out of this life, we're looking in the wrong place. And that's where we find this big church word pop up, the word legalism. And a lot of times we associate legalism directly with the Pharisees, with the passage that we saw Jesus teach about, the importance of not doing good things in front of people. We think about legalism as a righteous act in order to get attention from other people and to get people's praise. But that's not all that legalism is. Sure, Pharisees had their own brand of legalism, and we can certainly be subject to that. But legalism at its core is seeing goodness, particularly our own goodness, as a source of salvation in and of itself. That if I do the right things, if I say the right things, if I go the right places, if I make sure I don't go the right places, if I say the right things and make sure I don't say the naughty things, and if I go to church enough, and if I look like an upstanding, right, and moral person, then I'm going to be able to live this happy, healthy, whole life. I'm going to be able to eat, drink, and be merry all the days of my life because maybe I'll be able to impress God enough to have a relationship with God, or I'll simply be good enough to where God will have to bless me. But legalism is exhausting because it's basically the equivalent, since we talked a lot about diet and stuff last week, it's the equivalent of being on a diet and just cutting calories, and working out, doing all the things that you think you're supposed to do and not seeing any change at all, day after day, week after week, month after month. Eventually, it gets overwhelming, it gets exhausting, and you just quit. This is something that I've seen a lot recently. And I'm sure every generation has their own form of legalism that they grow up under. Maybe we rebrand it. But I think especially for someone around my age that grew up inside the church, the 90s burgeoning youth group culture was a very legalistic place. I remember any kind of youth event that you would go to, any kind of big youth conference that you would go to, you're not standing up and just hearing somebody preach out of the Bible. Usually, you're hearing some kind of a topical sermon or lesson or talk where somebody is standing up there giving you a list of things that you should do or a list of things that you shouldn't do. And it's a very Old Testament style of commandment process there because they would say, if you do this, if you do these things, then you'll receive these kind of rewards from God. And this is what a healthy Christian looks like. And this is how they should act. And if you live this way, you'll get these good good things, but then if you do these bad things, then there's going to be all kinds of negative consequences that come. And so I remember, especially in my own life, but I know this is true in a lot of my friends' lives and the people that I grew up in church with, kind of sitting under that type of a youth group culture, your feeling of adequacy, your feelings of closeness with God, were all tied to behavior. If I do good, God loves me. If I don't do good, eh, not so much. If I do good, there will be good things. If I do bad, there will be bad things. And so it was just on this constant wheel of trying to perform. And now this amazing thing has happened where now that I'm in my mid-30s, 
So many people that I grew up with that were active in their church, some of which that even went into ministry, felt called into ministry, at least they professed that calling, but it was probably just more of that legalism pushing them into an occupation that they felt like was the only thing that they could possibly do, now have fallen away from the church, fallen away from the faith, and a weird thing has happened. They kind of act like 16 and 17-year-olds. There's this weird reversion to kind of behavior that you would expect a rebellious teenager to take part in because they've just been on this wheel and they've been trying this diet, spiritually speaking, for so long and they finally just got tired of it and they're like, oh my gosh, I just want to do all the things that I feel like I missed out on. I want to be a part of all those things because this is clearly not working. This is not satisfying me. This can't get me where I want to go or do for me what I want it to do. And so I'm just going to try anything and everything else. And so, why? Why do we do those things? Why are we destroying ourselves trying to live a life that can't ever satisfy us? He continues in verses 19 and 20 and 21. It says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. But then he says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart at all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. So the writer here says, you want to try to be perfect? Why are you trying to be perfect? (laughs) You're going to exhaust yourself trying to be this kind of righteous person. But the reality is no one, no matter how wise, no matter how holy, no matter how closely they've walked with God, no one has been perfect and no one was without sin. And so why are we exhausting ourselves trying to get to this point? If the entire point of life is just to find happiness and satisfaction, it would make a lot more sense to strive for some sort of mediocrity or lowest amount of right possible just to get by. Because again, we don't want to be the really wicked people. Nobody wants, I mean, like some people want to be the really wicked people, but we don't like those people because they're really wicked people. And so we don't want to be the really, really wicked people because that doesn't seem like a good or appealing life. But if the whole righteous thing is not going to really satisfy it, why don't we just kind of find this nice medium where I can get what I want, I can do what I want, I can go where I want, but also I can get just enough Jesus to kind of make things work. And I feel like that's probably a place where most modern Christians have fallen into. I'm going to live my life for me. I'm going to try to preserve my life as much as possible, but I'm just going to keep giving this 10% of my life to Jesus just to make sure everything's in order and just so I can be a moderately pleasant person. And that legalism can kind of turn into laziness. But this is clearly not the kind of life that a believer in Christ is called to. When we look at the Old Testament commandments that Jesus affirms and identifies, when we look at the teachings of Christ, when we hear Jesus say pretty radical things like be holy or be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, these are really hard sentences. And so how do we factor all of that in? How do we take those three L's that we've looked at, the legalism, the laziness, the licentiousness, and scramble those things around and figure out how we're supposed to live? Of course, It comes down to Jesus. And Jesus reminds us that those three ways to live are not the only way, that there's another and a better way to live. I think we can see some of these things throughout the wide narrative of Scripture. 
And for a follower of Christ, the way that we are able to live without destroying ourselves through legalism, without resorting to full the wickedness of licentiousness, or finding that laziness of just wasting our lives there somewhere in the middle, we can start by resting in Christ and working for his kingdom. And you may say, well, Chris, resting and working at the same time? That doesn't make sense. How, how is this possible? And to me, that sounds like you're asking me for a story about bicycling, which I'm glad to oblige. Anytime I get the opportunity just to throw in bicycle stories, I love it. Because there really is some spiritual truth in the way that you have to ride a bike, especially if you're looking at any kind of a distance ride. Because if you've got somewhere to go, if you're commuting, say, to work, or if you're making a long ride and you need to make it to your campsite or you need to make it back home by a certain time and the lights are going down, you got to be able to get where you need to go. And so sometimes that means that you don't have a whole lot of time to stop. And so the way that you handle that is you start finding a way to both work and progress and rest at the same time. And I said the word progress really weird. It was like three syllables, and I'm sorry. But so what you do is you find times when you need to pedal. Maybe on some flats or some rolling hills or especially on the climbs where you really have to get in and use all that wattage and all that power that's within your body. But then on the other side, you might find some time where you're going downhill on the bike. This is how bikes work. They just move on their own if they're going downhill. And so you can just kind of pick your feet up and relax and rest, but you're still making this progress. And so you're finding this rhythm between grinding and coasting, between working and resting, but still trying to get to the place where you're trying to go. And that looks a lot about the way that Jesus teaches the Sabbath. Because Jesus gets in a lot of trouble when it comes to the Sabbath day. One time, Jesus and his disciples are just hanging out, and they've got some grain, and they crush it, and they eat it. And I didn't know that's a thing that you could do, that you could just crush grain and eat it. I don't actually really know how grain works in the slightest. But that's what they were doing, so maybe we should try that sometime. They crushed some grain with their hands, and there were some religious leaders watching them because Jesus just always had religious leaders watching them, and it's so creepy and bizarre. But they're breaking this up. They eat it, and then the religious leaders look at them and say, See, we knew you were a blasphemer. We knew you were someone who didn't care anything about God's law. You are working on the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. And those same religious leaders, I mean, maybe it was different religious leaders, but some kind of religious leaders were watching Jesus and they said, see, we knew you came from Satan. We knew you didn't care about God's law. Look at you healing on the Sabbath. You are working on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, no, that's not how this thing works. See, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. You're not a slave to this ritual or this process, but it's here to give you life and to give you rest and to give you peace. And we learn from the ministry and the work of Jesus that ministry is not work, not in the sense of the kind of things that we're supposed to rest from. We celebrate our Sabbath generally on Sundays. Church moved the day a little bit to realize the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. But Sundays aren't a day off. But there are time to rest in Christ while we work, while we serve, while we love. And I love that Shane's already mentioned this, but we come together to participate in worship. We come together to love and to serve and to care for others. We don't walk into a church service with the expectation that, oh, now I just get to take my hands off the wheel and just rest. But we come in for the purpose of ministry. 
And sometimes ministry feels a little bit like work. I've wrestled with this as a pastor before. I've talked to other pastors and talked about how they kind of find rest because Sunday, this day that we tend to reserve as a Sabbath, is again a day that requires a lot of work usually. And I know a lot of ministers who will take a day of the week and they just turn their phone off. They're like, I'm not available. This is my Sabbath. And Sabbath rest is not making yourself unavailable to ministry. It's not making yourself unavailable to the work that God has called you to do. And I'm not saying you can't take vacations. I'm not saying you can't get away. We know that even Jesus would make himself a little bit distant sometimes from ministry so that he could be with the Father. But we know that also Jesus would wake up before the sun came up so that he was out able to do that before the crowds began to gather because when ministry needed to be done, Jesus was going to do ministry. And Paul tells us that we're called to be ready in season and out of season, that we're called to work constantly for the sake of the gospel, whether it's a season where we feel like we should be working and grinding or a season where we feel like we can take our hands off of the brakes and just coast. We need to be ready to do the work that God has called us to do. And it's because of that that we need to make sure that we prioritize our time with Christ because that's where we find rest. That's where we find peace. That's where we find the grace and the strength that we need to get from day to day. Again, going back to to youth group world in the 90s, there was this slavish devotion to a quiet time. And if you didn't have your quiet time, if you didn't read your Bible and have your prayer and do all these things you're supposed to do, then somebody in the church was going to ask you about it. You were going to have an accountability partner who was also a seventh grader, which is a really weird way to live. And they were going to ask you about how you read your Bible and when you read your Bible. And it became this slavish devotion to this practice and then also to this person. But there was no rest in that because you were doing it not for the purpose of growing in Christ and resting in Christ, but you were doing that for the purpose of just doing it. And this is where the gospel turns things on its head. When we work for the sake of Christ, we're able to find rest in that work to be renewed and refreshed by the transforming of our minds and the conforming of our hearts to the pattern of the gospel. And so we are always on mission for Christ. We are always working for the kingdom. But Jesus makes sure that in him we can find the rest that we need. And I promise you, when we're willing to do that kind of work, God is going to make sure we get the kind of rest and the kind of Sabbath that we need. So we rest in Christ, but work for his kingdom. We also rest in grace and walk in holiness. And so how do we fight these things? If we want just a simple answer to how do we fight legalism, licentiousness, and laziness, simply put, we just believe the gospel. Because Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. Not by your works so that anyone could boast, but that Christ has radically redeemed us and radically saved us, that we couldn't work our way to Jesus even if we tried. And so he worked his way to us and offered us a free gift so that anyone who puts their faith and their hope in Jesus has not only been saved, has not only been forgiven, but the Bible tells us that we have been made worthy to walk in the good works that he prepared for us before the foundation of the world. He makes us worthy and able to walk in holiness. 
that commandment that Jesus gives us to be holy as the heavenly Father is holy, he gives us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to do exactly that, to live out works of righteousness, to do good things that honor and glorify God, that love our neighbor as ourselves and that see the gospel go out through the world. Sinful, wicked, broken people like us become saints and ministers of the gospel and sons and daughters of God who have the power, who have the ability, and who have been gifted to be able to to walk in righteousness, we can do good and be good for the sake of the kingdom. But we're also covered up in grace when we come up short. When we mess up, there's no starting back over. There's no having to earn God's favor again. There's no having to return to the waters of baptism. There's no having to pray any certain prayers in any certain order. When we fall, grace is covering us up. There's new grace every morning. There's new mercies every morning. And God picks us up, lifts us up, and pushes us again on our way. And so we're reminded that we are truly called to strive to honor God in everything that we do, but also still radically loved by him when we don't. And that's the paradox of grace. Yes, we should work for the kingdom. Yes, we should work for the gospel. Yes, we should be holy and our conduct and behavior should be honoring and pleasing to God. But when it's not, there's grace and more grace. And his grace is sufficient for us. And so we rest in Christ, but work for his kingdom. We rest in grace, but walk in holiness. And then we just need to remember that we receive in Christ all we need so that we can give freely. Because here's the problem with Leo Tolstoy. And I hate just dragging this guy through the mud because he's been dead for a while and his country's kind of iffy right now. But Leo Tolstoy would give all of his stuff away. And then what did he have left? Nothing. Literally nothing. Barely a wife. I mean, I'm surprised. It's amazing that this woman didn't leave him. She had to be just a living saint. But he kept giving his stuff away, and so he'd get rid of everything. And then once that last item was gone, once he gave away his last loaf of bread or the last chair in his house, what did he have left? Nothing. Emptiness. And he had no more use to anybody around him. But the gospel reminds us that the Christian has everything that we need to do everything that we're called to do. We can look at Paul as a comparison to Tolstoy because Paul writes, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And the thing about the drink offering is you're going to pour the whole thing out. And Paul says, I'm being emptied out for your sake. I'm being poured out for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. I am being emptied completely. And yet Paul knew that he wasn't being emptied completely because it wasn't his power that he was pouring out. It wasn't his work that he was pouring out. It wasn't his love that he was pouring out. But Paul knew that he had a God, like he wrote to the church in Ephesus, that lavishes his love on him, that lavishes his kindness on Paul, that grace is sufficient for Paul every single day. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm being poured out like a drink offering but I got more. Because if Paul was pouring out of his own work, his own energy, his own strength, his own possessions, then he would eventually run out. But he wasn't. He was pouring out of the love and affection and mercy that came from Jesus. And that well never runs dry. But again, that's only when we fully rely on his strength. 
And that's the heart of the issue here when it comes to working for the kingdom and also being able to rest and have everything we need and not ever pouring out of an empty glass because we have to realize that our work, our self-righteousness, our legalism is exhausting. And the more we try to pull from our own reserves, the more we're going to find ourselves just coming up short and falling apart. But when we come to Jesus, And when we trust in his power, his grace, and his mercy, and pour out of his cistern, we find that his work is easy and fulfilling and satisfying. Because remember, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, who've been carrying your own burdens, who've been tilling your own soil, wearing your own yoke. He says, Come to me and take my burden, because my burden is light and my yoke is is easy. The work that Paul was doing was difficult work, but it was a work that he considered good, a work that he never considered too hard, a work that he never considered himself unqualified or incapable of doing, because like he said over and over and over again, not me, but Christ who lives through me. It's not my strength, not my works, but the works prepared by God for me to walk in. And that's how Paul was able to do what seemed to be impossible, overwhelming, breaking, soul-crushing work. Yet with joy and worship songs on his lips, he was able to do that because it was Christ's power working through him. And when we work by his power, we can give all we have for his sake, for the good of others, and for the growth of the kingdom, and never lose a thing. And so, why are we destroying ourselves with empty works of righteousness that come by our own design and our own doing and our own hope? Or why are we wasting our calling, settling for a lazy gospel, a lazy Christianity that just does enough to get by, just does enough to wear a tag on our shirt, just does enough to maybe get a leadership position in a church, but not too much to where it interferes with our lives. When we could be a people of beautiful gospel balance, finding an unmatched rest in the hands of the Savior who loves us and cares for us, finding us a grace that washes over our sins with each and every moment, finding a mercy that is unflinching and new every morning, but also finding a strength to do the work that Christ has called us to do, to find an endurance to be able to run the race that Christ has called us to run, to find a love to be able to love the unlovable and reach the unreachable and never pour from an empty cup. This is the kind of life that Christ has called us to live, and it's ours in Christ Jesus. Let's take it.